Well, good morning, everybody, again, and would you please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. This is the second to the last sermon in our Daniel series. Um, it's always a strange experience for a pastor, because you really don't want to stop, um, and yet we, we are so thankful that even though it's the, the the study of any particular book of the Bible might stop in terms of Sunday services. God's word continues to speak. And how we, how we pray that this series has been a help for your hearts, strength for your souls, promoted your worship, promoted your perseverance in the Lord. Uh, you see in your notes this morning, we're entitling this sermon, His Rage We Can Endure, For Lo, His Doom Is Sure, God's Kingdom is forever. And hopefully you'll see that as we study our passage this morning. Last week we studied the prophetic vision that God gave to Daniel. Covered some 350 years um, between when Daniel was alive and the coming of this evil ruler named Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, he was one of the worst persecutors of God's people in history. And we learned how the prophecy was precisely fulfilled in history. We saw that the raging nations were futile. And that the ungodly plans of governments and dictators and kings ultimately come to ruin. We were reminded that all of history is about God's glory. And about God working out his redemptive plan among the nations and reconciling those that he has called through Jesus Christ. The proof of God's powerful sovereignty and his unstoppable passion to provide us with a savior from our sins, it's faith building, it's comforting to know that he is in control, both over history and over our lives. Even when he calls us to walk through really hard times, I was so blessed how Ian Duguid summarized, summarized this thought. He, he's been a special help in this series in, in regard to a commentary on Daniel that he's written. And I hope this will encourage your hearts just in terms of an introduction. It's, this is in your notes. Our view of history is foundational to the way that we live. If history is just an assortment of random circumstances coming from nowhere and going nowhere, then faithful suffering has no possible meaning. It's a waste of life that could have been better spent on pursuing pleasure instead. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to a final end, then our actions are filled with meaning. Any sacrifices that are demanded of us will be made more than worthwhile by our hope of glory on the last day. Isn't that so well said? And that's especially for any of you who feel stuck. And I think all of us at some point, don't we get to this point, I just feel stuck. I feel stuck in a job. I feel stuck in, I, in, a, in a specific battle with health. I just feel stuck. And it's as though life has become just useless and futile. 
Isn't it good to know that God is moving history forward? That there's meaning in what's going on in your life. It's not futile. So let's keep those thoughts in mind as we read today's text and learn that there is yet to come someone more evil than Antiochus Epiphanes that will threaten but never defeat God's people. So would you join me in reading this morning Daniel 11, beginning in verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Oh, Heavenly Father, please use your word, use this sermon as an expression of your love and your light and your life. Please transform us with this word. Please, God, use this word to put steel in our spines and tenderness in our hearts for the spiritual battle that every one of us face. We're so thankful that the victory is yours. And so we look to you this morning to grow in grace, in godliness, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time you played pin the tail on the donkey? Did you know that the game originated around 1875. It wasn't invented for children to play, but it was an adult game. From what we can tell, it started among the cultured elite of Milwaukee and went viral from there. I know things couldn't go viral but at that time, but anyway, it spread like wildfire. In fact, it became so popular that it ceased to just be known as a party game it became the very reason for parties. So essentially, I would invite you to my house and I would say, it's a donkey party. Isn't that, I mean, that's, that's just, that's why you come to this church, isn't it? For just such life-changing facts like that. Um, no one really knows why the poor donkey was the animal of choice to be poked and prodded and stabbed and pinned. Some, someone, I was reading, one person said, somebody must have had a traumatic experience as a child with, with a donkey, um, and that was just the way to get back at it. Well, as time has gone on, have you noticed that it just seems that we're not satisfied just poking and pinning donkeys? Have you noticed that? Uh, I remember when <laughs> the boys were growing up, we had a birthday party for one of our sons, and we pinned the nose on Bob the tomato. For veggie tails. That was, we did, we pinned the nose on Bob the tomato. Not too many years ago at one of our Reformation Day parties, we, we pinned Martin Luther's 95 thesis on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Just, just really wild, isn't it? Well, did you know that Christians have developed a similar game? It's called Pin the Tail on the Antichrist. Yeah, and I bet some of you, if you've been a Christian for a while, but you've been tempted to play it. Pin the tail on the Antichrist. Some of the people or institutions that people have tried to pin the label of Antichrist on in the past have been Nero, Hitler, Napoleon, multiple U.S. presidents. This was pretty fascinating just to go back and to see how many U.S. presidents have been named as, oh, this must be the Antichrist. Henry Kissinger, Mikhail Gorbachev, Mohammed. If you were a fan of the Left Behind series, uh, you would have thought it was some evil person, like, like, do you remember his name? Nikolai Carpathia. You remember Nikolai? 
A number of theologians over the years have thought that the Antichrist would come from the papacy or from Islam. I can remember just about 20 years ago, people thought it was going to be Prince Charles of England. I never got that one. I just never got that one because he just seems just... Anyway, never mind. You don't need that commentary. You know, our text today, just so you'll know, our text today is not a cheat code so that we can be the ones to win the prize. (laughs) We get to win the prize of pinning the tail on the Antichrist. We know who it's going to be. This text is not going to tell us who he is. There's no text in Scripture that tells us who he is. It does tell us what he's like. That's what we most need. The Lord is not calling us to worry about an Antichrist to come as much as he's calling us to wage war, spiritual war, against the evil that's already among us. That's that's one of the biggest problems about pin the tail on the Antichrist. It gets our attention about who is it going to be rather than we have a war that we have to fight right now. That's the biggest problem. And that's why this text serves our hearts so well. Because there is a battle to fight against evil as we seek to fulfill the mission of reaching people for Christ locally and globally. That's our mission. And there's a battle to fight. And we've seen in the book of Daniel that all of hell is standing hard against the pursuit of God's glory and the salvation of people from every nation on earth. So here's our main point this morning. God promises us that by His grace, we will endure and overcome even the rage of the Antichrist and and shine as gospel lights until Christ comes again. I hope you'll see that as we unpack the text this morning. The first portion of this is from verses 32 through 35 in chapter 11. God gives great grace to endure great evil. God gives great grace to endure great evil. Antiochus Epiphanes hated God and his people. He assaulted Israel with horrible and evil persecution. We saw a lot of that last week in the text. We learn that what God's people needed the most was not the knowledge of a military strategy to overcome him. Not a knowledge of an escape route to get away from him. What they most needed was the knowledge of God. And I just want to ask you, just is, is that the way you and I process our day-to-day lives? That, that when you're hearing about the, the bills that are putting, being put forward about, about this, there's like this raging against anti-abortion uh, legal proceedings. Uh, Texas was, is viewed as such an enemy of our nation because of, of what was passed here. There's, I think it's Missouri, is it Missouri? I think they're trying to pass another similar bill like Texas. I don't know whether you saw 500 female athletes came forward and signed a petition and, and they're going to stop this because, because the threat of not having an abortion is the threat to women's athletics. Did you know that? It's part of Title IX. Th- oh, you guys, there's so much convoluted stuff. 
How about just the issues of, of the, the assault against marriage and against family and all of these things? All the issues about, about President Biden, what, whatever you think of him, all the issues about him and executive orders and all. Let me ask you, do you respond to that by, by feeling like you need to know some sort of plan to follow or some, I, I don't know. Or do you respond first by saying, you know what I need? I need to know God. I need to better know my God. That's, that's what this, the heartbeat of what this passage is telling us. Because the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know God, not just know about God. You know the, do you know the difference? You know people like that, don't you? You know people who, 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 they can talk to you about God, but when you, when you watch their lives, it's like, I don't think you know him. There's no obvious love for him because of how much he loves you. Don't tell me you know God and not love him and not love others in his name. They knew God. They had a genuine saving relationship with him. They knew and were growing in his character. They, they were concerned about participating in his mission. These are people who know God. Knowing God results in this river of grace to give us strength to stand firm. And one of the things we're going to have to stand firm against is to resist the, the seductions of the world. To, to resist the seductions of somebody like an Antiochus Epiphanes. And then to also stand firm in faith and not fear persecution either. God will give us grace for that. Like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they knew how to take action in regard to doing all they could to glorify God in their employment, working as prisoners of war for pagan kings. And they also knew how to take action when resistance was required, even if it meant their death in the fiery furnace or in the jaws of lions. Doug Wilson, I'm not sure how many of you know of, of Doug Wilson, pastor I, who I appreciate. Doug Wilson is actually Carl and Julie Berglund's pastor in Idaho. And I, I saw, uh, he has this thing called Blog and May Blog. <laughs> Interesting name, name for, a, for a blog. Um, and in it, recently, he had a recent post that, that kept saying this, don't take the bait. Christians, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. <laughs> so it just made me want to find out, what is he talking about? He was just talking about just history. Not just the times we're living in, but just history and about Christians need to be circumspect about how, his, mainly he was saying this, Christians shouldn't react to government. Christians need to respond to the Lord. We shouldn't react to government. We should respond to the Lord. And his, his application point was that, you know, that, that historically, governments are actually, they're doing things in such a way, ungodly pagan governments are doing things in such a way that they want you to react irrationally. They want you to go grab your guns. So that way, guess what? Then they can justify their overreach in the name of the good of the country. And so Wilson was just saying, we need to take action. Scripture says we need to take action. But take action 
in response to the Lord, his character, and his mission, not just to make America great again. Verses 33 through 35, we find out that God's people are tested by temptation, by sword, by flame, by captivity, and plunder. When we read that, so Joshua, are you, are you in the room? Joshua, are you here? Is he on baby duty? Oh, there you are. Which Joshua? Thanks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Joshua Taylor. Thank you so much for taking us through Romans 8. Did anybody notice the similar words of Daniel 11 and Romans 8? Did anyone notice that similarity? Guess where Paul got those words from? From the book of Daniel. You know what I get concerned about, guys? I get concerned that when we read that section of Romans 8, because it's, it's a wonderful section. It's all about the love of the Lord. Oh, he, oh, how he loves us. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, right? Uh, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Who was telling me? Peter Davidson. I think, Eric, weren't you telling me? Peter Davidson's one of the pastors in New Orleans. Oh, I love serving with this man during my time serving as a pastor there. When this is read in the church in New Orleans, Romans 8 is read in the church in New Orleans, Peter scares people because he'll be sitting in the congregation and, and somebody be reading Romans 8. Shall tribulation separate us from the Lord? And Peter will say, no! <laughs> Shall distress? No! Persecution? No! Peter would love you. He would love you. He would absolutely love you. But the problem, precious ones, with that is we tend, we tend to turn, we tend to take that section of Scripture and it just turns into poetry. It's not poetry. It's reality. We need to know that section of Scripture because these kind of things happen regularly to people, to believers all around the world, and they may soon happen to us in the United States. And isn't it good that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of what Christ has done? So this is God's great grace to help us endure evil. God uses that kind of testing to accomplish two things. First, it's a way of separating the sheep from the goats. Those who only associate with God's people for selfish reasons and not saving reasons would stumble and fall away. That's one of the things that are happening here. But those who knew and loved God also stumbled. Did you notice that? I don't know if you kind of saw that. Wait, wait. They stumbled. Wait, they, wait, God's people stumbled. Well, they stumbled when they were persecuted. Oh, guys. You know, sometimes we think of the martyrs. We think of people who have been horribly persecuted for the faith. We think, what is the, the great phrase? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the... Isn't, am I getting that right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Somebody who, Alan, are you here? Whenever I don't know, I always get, Alan, are you, do you know? Um, if, that, if that's the way it says. It almost sounds like, oh, just somehow persecution just changes us all into superheroes. I, I ain't no superhero. I don't usually respond well my first or second tries with adversity. Do you? Aren't you glad? that stumbling when you're facing pressure doesn't disqualify you as a child of God? Isn't this hopeful? 
They struggled. They stumbled. They were not perfect when they went through this persecution. But there was sustaining grace at work in their hearts. They didn't abandon the faith because God... Let's just kind of bring singing all back into this. Why? Because He held them fast. Instead, they were refined and purified and made white. They were becoming more like the Lord as a result of the pressure. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes meant it for evil, but God meant it for, say it, good and godly good, not just any good. Here's a a thought. This is a wonderful reminder to us that on this side of heaven, our greatest victory in Christ is our maturity in Christ. God will not always rescue us by a change in our location. God will always rescue us by a change in our maturation. Do you need grace for that this morning? Does anyone besides me need grace for that? I'm, I always am looking for the get-out-of-jail-free card. I don't know if that's the best way to describe that. I want the beam me up Scotty experience. I want to, would you pray that I could actually become more like Christ in the latter part of my life than I ever have in the former? I would love it if you'd pray for me for that. I would love it if my first response to pressure could be, oh dear God, please help me mature as a believer through this. Forgive me for asking for a change of location. Maturation is what I need. Maturity is my victory. And I hope that can minister to your heart this morning. God loves to transform us and and he uses adversity to do that. It's comforting to know that evil men like, like Antiochus Epiphanes are not in control, isn't it? That's God's in control of these things. He's in control of these hard times. His love and mercy. Did you also notice that God has has planned that there'll be a day that the adversity will stop. So, probably, I don't know, who is not in something right now that you wish could really hurry up and end? I I don't know what it is for you, but isn't it good news to know that the one at the controls is not Satan. It's God. And he will be the one to end it. And if he hasn't ended it, what do we conclude? That he's with me in the fire. And he's walking with me. And he's preserving me. And he'll give me all the grace I need to love him and follow him. Amen? So verse 35 starts transitioning us to the rest of the the passage. It's really a reference point that shifts our focus away from Antiochus Epiphanes back to prophecy again. So we've we've been at prophecy in in Daniel 11, and then we looked at it through the lens of history, but now it's coming back to prophecy, and it's a prophecy really that is beyond our day today. It's, It's a prophecy of someone who would come who would be far worse than Antiochus Epiphanes, but that Antiochus Epiphanes would be a a pretty helpful template 
to help us understand about the nature of evil and the, the strategies of evil, particularly of the antichrists that come parading through uh, human history. So let's go to our second point this morning. The second point is that God promises that great evil will be brought to a great end. And that's verses 36 through 45. First, um, did I put a definition in your notes? Did I put a definition of Antichrist? Okay, I didn't highlight it here. So here's a definition of Antichrist. It's not perfect by any means, but one conformed to the image of Satan and is a personification of evil, lawlessness, and enmity against God, God's people, and God's plan of redemption. I think that that kind of gives a little bit of an encompassing kind of a, a sense of this. So, so the writer here gives us a, a very vivid description of Antichrist because the evil is around us now. The things that, guys, the things that are being done now are literally the setup for the arrivals of Antichrist. I mean, the, the, the philosophies, it doesn't just arrive with Antichrist. The evils are among us every day, and, they, and they're used to, to pave a pathway for the entrance of people like Antiochus Epiphanes or this future Antichrist into the world. So let's look at some descriptions of this Antichrist. One, in his lust for glory, he's accountable to no one. And you see that in verse 36. It says, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. This is an extreme of, of a lack of accountability. Extreme lack of accountability. This is human autonomy run amok. He answers to no one. It's a rejection of God and a deification of himself. We saw shadows of that in Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. Remember when he was doing really all things according to the glory of his name? These characteristics of the Antichrist, I think, are really seen very well in Isaiah 14. That's in your notes. Read this with me. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, look at all the eyes that go on with this. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. When I read that, I don't just think about the Antichrist. I have, to, I have to deal with that about my own heart. When Jan and I get in, in a disagreement, in a fight, or intense fellowship, it's amazing how the I in me rises up. If there's, if there's an issue in relationships isn't it so easy how the I in me rises up? How about you? I bet this morning some of us had the I in us rise up even this morning in terms of just dealing with family and getting to church. I mean, it's just, it's just so easy for the I in us to rise up. Satan's desire was this from the start, wasn't it? You shall be like God. 
no accountability, total autonomy, no consequences for my action. And, and don't you see that right now? How about in government? Aren't, isn't, I mean, oh my goodness, especially if you're older, you've seen. It's, there's never been a perfect government. The United States, praise God for the United States, but it's never been perfect. There's always been problems, but it just seems like there's this, this, this crescendoing of a lack of accountability. How do we govern? Oh, by executive order. I thought it was about we the people, right? How about that? So government, how about the LGBTQ plus movement? No accountability, total autonomy, no consequences for my actions. Right to abortion. So I didn't realize this. When Roe v. Wade was being pushed and passed, the same arguments are being brought up again about trying to keep Roe v. Wade on the table. And here's one of the arguments, is that, that women are demanding to be equal to men in being able to be not pregnant. Equality. So we need, we need equality. You know, no concern about consequences, no, and for sure, no mention about babies' lives. No mention. But it's just this equality and autonomy and a lack of accountability. So that's, that's what it's all about. We need the ability to be unpregnant, even if it means the death of a baby. It's moral insanity, isn't it? It's moral insanity. We need to guard our own hearts from these characteristics. That's where I don't want to just get us all out and ooky spooky antichrist. How are you doing with accountability? <laughs> Dave, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't just talking to you, Dave. I'm sorry. I just realized that that's the, there are times that a preacher should not just look in somebody's eyes with a question like that. But how are you doing though, Dave? Really? I mean, you know. Um, Husbands, would your wives say, my husband is a very accountable man. He doesn't eat his bosses for lunch. He doesn't eat his pastors for lunch. He honors authority. He submitted his life to people. I've told Jan that if, if I am, am committing an ongoing repetitive sin and I'm not repenting of it, I'm not growing out of it, I'm not looking for help from it, that she has permission to go to Hugh and Alan as our, as our elders to, to say, Billy needs help. Husbands, would your wives say that you're an accountable man? You're a man under authority. Moms, would your kids say, mom is an accountable person? How are we doing with accountability how are we doing with just this desire to have autonomy, no strings attached, no consequences to our actions, no repentance, right? That, that, so no consequence to my actions mean no repentance. How are we doing in terms of maturity? This is so important, isn't it? We keep going. He speaks blasphemies against the one true God. And you see that in verse 36b. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. The only one and true God. He's blaspheming. 
Um, you see some of this. I mean, it's amazing and beautiful, the New Testament parallels here. Um, and so we see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Um, hang on one second here, guys. Just in my... Yeah. Now concerning the, I'm sorry, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus, this is in your notes, um, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It's a great blasphemy, isn't it? But he doesn't, you notice, he doesn't first just come with brutality. He comes with blasphemy. And let's just don't see blasphemy as, as uh, cursing Jesus. Let's just don't see that. It's blasphemy when he promotes the lie that something can satisfy your heart besides Jesus. More than Jesus. That's blasphemy. And he's pulling that one a lot, isn't he? Yesterday in the preparation meeting for the uh, training meeting for our children's ministry volunteers, we, we talked about how God wants to give generation after generation the gospel and how we're to be working hard today so that future generations can know the Lord. And, and when Moses was talking to the people, you know, he wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land. So you remember he had to give some last words to the people and he talked about having the Word of God on their hearts. And then teaching their children the Word of God, whether they rise up or they lie down or they walk in the way. And then he said, why? He said, because when you go into the promised land, it's the land of milk and honey. And what the world is trying to do. And so moms and dads, here's huge parenting need. The kids are going to be tempted to believe that the milk and honey is more satisfying than the Lord. That's the biggest blasphemy. That's one of the biggest blasphemies that are taking place today. And then, and then isn't it just like government to come in and say, oh, and by the way, we can give you everything that you need. It'll be free. Third point, he will fight against faith in God being passed on to the next generation. Did you notice it says, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. Oh my goodness, isn't that? That's, that's why we're so passionate about children's ministry and youth ministry. We're so passionate to want to equip parents to be the best disciple makers possible of their children. You guys, because when, you, when we leave this room and we walk out the doors of our households, we're, we're breathing in the air this evil, strategic, intentional effort that the faith of the fathers would not be passed on to our children. I know, I'm sorry, I get, I get so passionate about it, but I tell you, wait until you hold your grandchild Wait until you hold your grandchild because you, then you'll realize, 
oh my goodness, it really was important how I raised my kids. But it's not just about our parenting, it's about an opposition that we have to fight daily because there is, there is an evil at work that doesn't want your kids to know Jesus the way you knew Jesus. Fourth point is he will fight against the biblical view of marriage and sex and gender. You know, it says he will pay no attention or show no desire for women or to the one loved by women. He will disregard women. He'll, there'll be shameful treatment of women. There'll be a disregard of biblical marriage, disregard of God-assigned gender at conception. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson put that, and I put this in your notes. God has made humanity male and female interrelated and interdependent to reflect His glory. There is nothing more basic to human life biologically, psychologically, emotionally, and socially than the male-female distinction within the unity of one humanity. Aren't you glad for smart people? Oh, man! There is nothing more basic to human life biologically, psychologically, emotionally, socially, Sinclair, I would add spiritually, than the male-female distinction within the unity of one humanity. In 2022, we're going we're to go to great lengths to ensure that we're passing on the biblical doctrine of complementarianism in, in the home and in the church. Because as you're seeing right here, it, it is, it's just going to be increasingly assaulted. The, the, the beautiful equality of men and women by God's design and the unique roles that God has given to those men and women to advance the mission of the gospel. It's going to be assaulted like crazy. Some of you might wonder, why is that one of our, our seven shared values? It's because of the evil that we live in. It's because it's, it's biblical, but it's, it's to equip us to fight the evil that we're living in. This was in Al Mohler's uh, uh, briefing this week, and I thought this was important to, to share together. A revolution in morality, let's just remind ourselves, is not just a change in morality. It's such a fundamental shift that it requires three different movements. What was condemned must be celebrated. And what was celebrated must be condemned. And those who will not now celebrate must themselves be condemned. Now we see that happening in the LGBTQ revolution, perhaps most clearly we see what was condemned now celebrated. What was celebrated, and that would be a historic biblical understanding of sexuality that shaped Western civilization, well, that's now being condemned. And of course, it's easy to understand the principle that those who will not join the celebration of the new morality are themselves to be condemned. Oh, so well said. That's why it's so critical to be discipling our kids. You guys, here's what's happening so often, and we, we just hear it fairly regularly, is that 
that today our kids are assaulted with discouragement and depression, maybe, maybe as much as any time in history. And so here's where the thought processes are going. And here's what the world is doing to evangelize the next generation. It's saying, well, you know what, if you're discouraged with your life, if you're depressed, you know, it's probably that you've got gender confusion. It's probably that you're not, it, this is where it goes. It's probably that, that maybe, maybe that you're not to be heterosexual. Maybe you're homosexual. Maybe you're gender fluid. Maybe then you'll be happy. That's how these things come in. But you see, that's, it's, it's an organized, strategic evil that's being shoved down our throats or attempted to be. He's going to glory in power. And you see that in verses 38 through 44. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Power is everything to him. Military power, political power, economic power. The God of fortresses that the text speaks of, it's the personification of war. This guy makes war his religion. It's, it's the God to whom he offers up the sacrifices of other people's lives. This is, this is the total personification of might makes right, right? Whoever has the power makes the policy. You hear all these phrases, right? Well, that, yeah, whoever has the power makes the policies. How about this one? History is written by, by the victors, meaning that history is not grounded in facts. It's rather, it's the winner's interpretation of the facts that prevails. The victors can force their narrative down the throats of the people. Well, guess where all that's coming from? It's not just, it's not just Republican or Democrat. You guys, there is an evil at work to try to blind us from the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ. He uses both seduction and persecution in verse 39. He says, those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. And now I'm going to quote the great theologian Carl Berglund. I already miss Carl, don't you? Carl and Julie and the family. Um, this affected me and has continued to affect me. Carl and I were just having a conversation and I think this was so profound. He said, you know, the flying of bullets do not signal the beginning of a war. The real war was going on long before that. Bullets flying tend to signal the beginning of the end of the war. Oh, you guys, that's the battle we're facing. And I don't know that we're waking up and our first thought is, dear God, help me be dressed in the complete armor of God today. Because I need every bit of that armament to fight the spiritual battle that needs to be fought. Because the war is going on now. I'm not worried about when the bullets fly. I'm worried about your souls now. I'm wanting maturity to be your victory. Maturity in Christ to be your victory. I'm wanting the mission of making disciples to be what gets you up out of bed and, and causes you to dream at night. 
And then the, the passage paints the destruction of the Antichrist. Verses 40 through 44 describe the rage he lets loose on God's people. He says the only nations that, that escape his evil dominance are Edom and Moab and Ammon. And those were all the enemies of Israel. And that just go with the flow. All those who oppose the Antichrist are destroyed. And it seems like no one can stop him until we read verse 45b. And it says... Um, Yet, he will come to an end with no one to help him. <laughs> We've taken a lot of time to describe all of this evil. And it took 12 words to wipe him off the map of history. Isn't that our hope? His great evil will come to a great end. And that's our hope, precious ones. 2 Thessalonians 2, 5-8 through 8, describes this way vividly, doesn't it? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Look, look, look at this. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's our great hope, isn't it? That's a great, great hope. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, another commentator that has really helped me in this study, he puts it this way. It's as if the Lord says to us, you must be prepared. In the world you have tribulation. He quotes, he's quoting Jesus in John chapter 16 there. But don't think too much of the tribulator. Is that even a word? I don't know, but I really like it. Don't think too much of the tribulator. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying, he will be easily disposed of. And that should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. And the whole chapter really reminds us that we're fighting a spiritual battle. And that's why I told you, we're going to, between, between this study and the book of Revelation, we're going to do a little mini-study out of Ephesians on the whole armor of God and fighting the spiritual battle. So that, you can be looking forward to that. Our last point is point number three. In the darkest times, God's people shine the brightest lights. Verses 1 through 3 is such a good bookend for verses 32 through 35 because it reminds us that God's people endure to the end even when evil is at its worst. It starts off, it's, it's a very intimidating beginning. Guys, did you get that? Yeah, I, you know what? This is, I pray that, that as we read Scripture, there, sometimes we'd have these experiences like the hair standing up on the back of our necks. Did you, did you hear that? There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation. Great trouble, yes, yes. But great victory, yes. And verse 1 describes how the angel Michael, remember here's just a reminder, there's a spiritual war going on 24-7. And, and there's, there's things taking place that our eyes can't see in that spiritual war. And it says, at that time, Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge over your people. 
But did you notice in the text, it's not just a powerful deliverance. It's a personal deliverance. So now this, every one of their names is written in this sermon. Well, not literally, but, but I'd like it to be. Every one of your names is written in this text. It's not just a powerful deliverance. Your name is written in this text if it's written where? In the book. In the Lord's book of life. And isn't that what we saw? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Isn't that good to know when God's people, when we're feeling alone and estranged and rejected and marginalized and forgotten and in pain. Oh, God knows us. God knew us before the foundations of the world. He set His saving love on us before the foundations of the world. He's written our names indelibly. Indelibly, does that mean not able to erase? Yeah? Thank you. Indelibly. Your names are written indelibly in His book. Why? Because if we could just use figurative language... Because the blood of Jesus was the ink that wrote them there. He cannot forget you. He carries you on his heart. It was, a, it was an embarrassing moment a couple of weeks ago. I was concerned about one of my boys. You're always going to be a parent, right? Your kids get to be adults. They're parents. And you're always a, I'm always a dad. And I was worried. I was worried about one of my sons. He was going through some hard times. And, but I was with one of the members of our church and they were sharing something with me and I, was, I guess it was really obvious I wasn't listening very well. And I said, Pastor Billy? I hate it when that happens. And I had to apologize and I said, I'm so sorry. I, my mind is on my, my son. Well, isn't it good that God can do that without being distracted from other things, <laughs> right? God's heart and mind is on you today. He knows when a sparrow falls. He knows the numbers. He's numbered the hairs of your head. That doesn't mean he just knows the total. It means he knows number 13 and 75 and 63. Isn't that great news? It's not just a powerful deliverance, but it's a personal deliverance. Do you know the Lord like that? Because if you don't, could I invite you to today? How do you get your name in that book? Well, it's by recognizing that you're a sinner and you deserve an eternal judgment because your sins haven't just been against Midland laws. Your sins have been against an eternal God. Your disobedience has been the law-breaking of an eternal God. And the only justice is an eternal punishment. But doesn't that make Jesus' death amazing? Because when he dies on the cross, an eternity of the punishment your sins deserved were laid on him. And God will give you a grace this morning to put your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior. And I would encourage you, run, don't walk, and pray that prayer this morning. God's people will be delivered. Did you notice how? It's interesting. 
Interesting, it's, it's sometimes on a Red Sea, maybe, I think there'll probably be some really cool miracles as the Lord's uh, near, uh, drawing near is approaching. But there's a greater deliverance that he's showing us here. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. How is the, how is the deliverance to come? Through death and resurrection. What a victory! Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The worst that Antichrist can do is to kill God's people. But he cannot kill God's people. He kills God's people. We die. And then, I don't know, it, it, for him, it must be like whack-a-mole. I mean, it must be like, yeah, got you. And then what do we do? We rise. We rise. To eternal life, never to be defeated again. That's what the Lord is doing. Thomas McCree, a Scottish pastor in a great revival, he said this, death cannot destroy us for it has already been destroyed by him for whose sake we suffer now. It's not just a resurrection of the redeemed, but it's also of the unbeliever. If you reject the Lord, there'll be a, a resurrection for that person too into everlasting judgment and punishment. And that's why we so call you to follow Jesus. Last is this. Just in case you're kind of wondering, well, does this mean that we endure to the end and we just do that by sitting around enduring or grumbling, or complaining, or hiding and hoarding. Is that how we endure? No, this text says we will endure by evangelizing. Could somebody say amen about that? You guys, we need to ask the Holy Spirit's power to share the gospel like we've never shared it before. That's as the time of God coming, as the time of Christ drawing near approaches, there should be even greater passion and desire to share his gospel. And verse 3 says this, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars in heaven. You guys, let's, let's be different. Let's don't be like the Christians on social media who are as good at grumbling and complaining as the unbelievers. God wants us to shine bright and beautiful with his saving gospel to the world. And the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. Stand up. I'm going to let you go home. We'll close with this verse. Just so that you'll believe the word and not just my, how excited I am. We're going to shine as lights in the darkest night. Why? Because Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful that though 
all of the various antichrists through history, and, and then, Lord, whatever this final antichrist, whoever it would be, whatever it would be like, as much as he rages against us, we're so thankful for the grace that holds us fast. We're so grateful to be citizens of a kingdom that lasts forever. So God, you speak to us in this book about a refining and a purifying. And it really seems like that's an important ingredient on how you want to sustain us through adversity. Lord, I, I just would put my hand up this morning to say I need a lot of help in that area. Would you, would you help me to become more like Christ in the last days of my life than ever before in the former? And I pray that that could shine like a light in the darkness so that many, many people could come to know Jesus savingly. And I pray that for all of the hearts here that would long for that too. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, fill us, control us, and send us forth from here on mission. To you be the glory, to our precious church family be the joy. In Jesus' name, amen.